I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome to episode number 82, my guest, Grant Tate. Grant is a servant leader, transformational coach, author, and business consultant. He grew up in a small town in the south of the U.S., and after working his way through engineering school, marrying his town sweetheart, and went to work for IBM, he was successful, and certainly things were not so good. His marriage crumbled, and he was conflicted, disillusioned, and alone. This is his journey through the joys and absurdities of work life and the struggle to find a balance between personal ambition and the human need for love. His experience over these years inspired him to write his first book, Hand on the Shoulders, Finding Freedom in the Confluence of Love and Career. It was very interesting for me to share time with Grant. Besides that, every book that he mentioned, I have read. <laughs> so we have that in common. I hope that you enjoyed this story as much as I did. Welcome, Grant. I am super happy that you're here today with me. I am just delighted to be here. It's great to see you. Yes, because we have so much in common, so this is awesome. Well, it's great. I, I look forward to this conversation. It's wonderful to share thoughts with you. Grant, you're here because I know you have a story. So why do you want to share your story? Well, I hope that my story can be helpful to other people who have experienced some of the things I have. I just finished writing a book that was published about six months ago. People have that have read the book have found lessons from a lot of different aspects. Uh, some business people have looked at the business experiences and just asked loads of questions about those experiences and those stories in the book. Others have looked at the relationships and others have looked at the different elements of travel and the places I've been. And so it's been rewarding to me that people have found meaning in uh, reading about my experiences. What I hoped for after going through the experience of this writing was good conversations, meaning I wanted conversations that really, hopefully, would help people. And that's been quite rewarding uh, through all the, the six months of experiences I've had since the book came out. So story by story, one of the things I hoped was that people could read something like the problems we were trying to solve or the relationship issues and say, what, what can I learn from that that is going to help me? And that's been, that's been the story of what I try to do in my career. And it, I'm getting a lot of uh, happiness and reward by talking to people about the shared experiences. Wonderful. I wonderful. And yes, conversations. And we are we are having it. We were having it just before yeah. we started here for recording. This is a good example. I yes. Know, exactly. <laughs> so Grant, when does your story start? Well, uh, let me give you the quick version. Uh, I was at a meeting at the University of New Mexico. This is many years ago now. And I was living on the East Coast, having spent a year at the university. 
uh, as a faculty member, but I was back for a meeting and meeting with a group of people in the conference room. And the dean, a friend of mine, came into the room, put his hand on my shoulder and said, your wife is on the phone. And I go, oh, crap, uh, something's happened. And the bottom line was that my father had uh, died suddenly on a treadmill test at the university hospital. Shocked. Uh, he was 69. He had some issues, but that was quite a shock. And yes, people lose parents. So what, what's the big deal with that, you know, compared to other people? But it hit me at a time when I was deeply disillusioned with my, my job and uh, found that my, my wife and I were living in different worlds. I was going up fast in the corporate world, and she was uh, pretty much at home but had no idea what I was doing. I was not taking the time to explain or try to share with her what was happening with me. And then uh, we, when we finally broke up, I found myself in a situation where I had no one to talk to. There wasn't one person that I could share my feelings with. Now, in retrospect, I could say, well, you could have hired somebody, you know, go to counseling. But I was, I was too embarrassed or whatever to, to take that step. I eventually found somebody that I could talk to, and we, that was another relationship with a woman, and turned out that that one was quite destructive. And when I finally realized that I had a choice, I had to change. I hit bottom, I was going through therapy, and finally said, something's got to change. And so I followed a project to Europe, to Paris specifically, entered a new phase of life, and spent five years in Europe essentially discovering myself. I started a new company. I formed new relationships and explored life in a different way and eventually returned to the United States with a life transformed and then found a new freedom in that transformation. And where did that freedom came from? Well, I had to confront my anger. I had to confront the voices that were telling me you're a bad person and eventually came to the point where I said, I'm okay expanding my relationships with a new look on, on how I see the world around me. So that's the short version. One of the things that caught my attention is that you say you have nobody to talk to. You have no siblings, no parents. I, I have a brother who is 10 years younger than I am. I could have talked to him. I could have talked to my mother. But because of the culture I grew up in, in a small town in Virginia, it was not really acceptable to have a divorce. It was not acceptable to uh, have troubles and talk about them. So we tended to bury problems, not talk about them. I guess I was afraid of, of criticism for being the bad person and having a bad result. You quit your job and went to Europe with nothing? I was lucky because I left IBM at a time when uh, they were giving early retirement. So I left with a reasonable financial stability and started a small consulting company. I followed a project to Paris and worked with a, with a wonderful team of people and met people all over the uh, Western Europe that started a whole new stage of life that has been quite rewarding. And did you learn French quickly? 
Well, that's that, that's an interesting story too, because I decided while I was in Paris, I wanted to stay in Europe. And how am I going to stay in Europe? Because I'm on a temporary visa. I'm in France. I don't understand French. I can, yes, I can order croissants and baguettes and good bottle of wine and things like that. I could handle the basics, but I knew that from a business standpoint, that living in France would be difficult unless I really understood both the language and the culture that went with it. I followed the project then to the Netherlands. Interestingly, that in the Netherlands, you try to speak Dutch, they will quickly detect you're your American or British and then shift to English. And I found that the Dutch culture was quite compatible with the way that I grew up and the way that business was conducted. And I started a small company in the Netherlands. We did significant projects around Europe and for the European Commission and had a wonderful experience. But one of the funny things is that I met my current wife, my, the one that I love and adore. She was from a little town in the north of Netherlands, but working in Amsterdam. And then when we got together, I had the question, well, how am I going to get a, a visa? You know, I'd like to stay, but I need to get a work permit. So we decided that I'd start a company and give myself a work. She went into the library at the university one day and found two provisions in the tax treaty between the United States and Netherlands that we could do that. So we went down to immigration. And I'll never forget the big tall fellow with a bald head who looked down at me and said, well, Mr. Tate, your visa's running out 60 days. What are you going to do? And I said, easy, sir. We're starting a company and I'm hiring myself. And he laughed in my face. And then uh, Uncle my wife, put two documents on the desk and said, this is how we're going to do that. He agreed, got my uh, work permit, and then we were off and running with a new company. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and so you hire yourself, and then and do you hire your wife too? She became part of the business. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand about the Dutch language, Dutch culture. She did. She'd been trained in administration. We were doing basic research on distance education and educational technology. And we were quite fortunate to be able to land projects from the European Commission to study different countries. We studied Netherlands, Germany, United States, Canada, Australia, Japan. That meant we had to have contacts and researchers in the different countries to help us develop these reports. And that worked quite well. One of the uh, researchers we had working with us was a young woman from Japan. The commission put out a bid saying we need somebody to study Japan, look at the technology for education, how they do distance education. I bid on it and had no idea we'd get the project, but we won the project. And I'm going, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I don't know Japanese language. We don't have a researcher in Japan. So I, I went to Brussels, talked to the people I knew there and asked around. They said, oh, you need to meet this young woman. So she wrote a report for us, and the report was, it was like a, a bell on a foggy night. It was just so clearly written. We did a good job on that project. Wonderful. And then what happened? So you only stay five years in Europe. So after, after five years, I came back. Uh, my wife, of course, came for the first time. Uh, I was still working on the Japanese project when we came back, so I brought the project with me and was shuttling back to Europe to make reports. We restarted the company here. Just to digress a bit, she was in Amsterdam. I was working near Maastricht in the southern part of the country, of the Netherlands, and I wanted to come down and live with me. And I sent her three postcards 
our first postcard said, come with me and we can see the world together. And the other one said, come with me and you can finish your degrees in the United States. And the third one said, come with me and I'll love you forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she came down and today I say, I've, I've delivered on two of the three. We've seen the world together. She, she's now an occupational therapist. And after having gotten three degrees in the United States, and I'm working on the third one, loving her forever. Uh-huh. Yes, that you have to work forever for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, you said that you were not well, that you had to recuperate when you went to Europe, but you still were working. So what changed for you, really? What changed for me was the way I was seeing myself and those around me. During the pandemic here, uh, one of the questions that a lot of leaders were asking was, who am I? What And what is my role? Because the workplace has changed a lot. But I found that that question is a profound question that everyone needs to ask themselves, especially if you're a leader. So I was asking myself, was, what are my values? What's important to me? How do I find people who share my values and that I can have a really trusting relationship with. That is today still the primary objective is that how can I develop good relationships with the people that I work with, the people I care about, and uh, how can we find common ground? What's particularly rewarding to me, particularly when we're facing so many challenges in the world, is that the, the people in all the countries that I know, and I still keep contact with, many, we share common concern about the world and the, and uh, the people we, we care about. And that sort of reinforcement of having other people that are with you and, and share things is, is critically important today. Uh, the other thing I think is an important part of this story is uh, going back to the time when I was disillusioned. How did I become disillusioned? And there's a, a lot of stories in the book about fast pace of working at IBM and at a time when the company was growing rapidly, producing many, many different kinds of computers. I was a small town kid. I went to the University of Virginia and studied engineering and then went to work immediately at IBM. So I, I found myself in a, in a culture that I loved at the time. It was challenging. I was having great fun, but I was, it was totally absorbing me. When I got to the point where found that my personal values and what I saw as the company values as it changed over 20 years were becoming quite different. When I joined, the company's first principle was respect for the individual. Take care of your people was the main idea. And then I found that one of the new leaders, the CEO, uh, really didn't seem to share that value. I had some conflicts outlined in the book that uh, told me that, whoa, wait a minute, what I believe in, what the company believes in are different. And so that was the start of my, what I now call disillusionment. And the fact that, as I said before, that I had gone and so absorbed in my career that I had lost track of my relationships. When you said that you were leaving during that dissolution time, did you notice any colleagues that were feeling the same way? Absolutely, for sure. Many. <laughs> Nobody took action like you. Well, they, uh, well, they took action their own way. Yes, that happened to many people. 
And how long did it take you to come out of that disillusion? Well, I don't know how long it was because, yes, I, I went into therapy. That took place in several different stages over a period of years. So I think that how long? Oh, my, probably five years before I finally took the step of moving to Europe and finding out who I was. Uh, there are other stories in the book about some of the important happenings along the career. One story I haven't talked a lot about, and this wasn't part of my disillusionment, but it was part of the kind of experiences that people have in the corporate world. And that is when one of my uh, employ- uh, one of my team members, a uh, young woman that I worked with, was reported to me, uh, was being harassed by one of my colleagues. Both my colleague and I were relatively high level in the mid-level ranks of the, of the big company. And I think it was one of the first cases that the company had really faced at that time. Some of the conversations I had with her, and of course, her name is not revealed in the book. It took courage on her part, courage on, on my part to some degree, to take that case forward and to get it resolved in the corporation. And with all the things that women get asked when they take action like that, like, did you cause this? Were you encouraging this behavior on the part of this harasser? And those sorts of things. But we came through it. It was a wonderful learning experience. It's important to stand up for what you think is right. That's very good. I'm glad that you supported her. You came back to the U.S. When did you decide that you wanted to write a book? Well, that happened recently. So I've been back here for 20 years. So I came back to the United States and reformed the company into a consulting company. Then my wife went into her new career path. Kind of work I do as a consultant is mainly with organizations. Basically, what I say is I, I try to help people thrive in a chaotic world. We coach individuals and we work with teams. And we work with organizations primarily in the high-tech world. We chose Charlottesville, Virginia as the place to, to do that, mainly because my family, my mother, and my grown children are on the East Coast. And so the new career is basically running a small consulting company and really trying to help people. Story of the book, a little over a year ago now, a year and three months probably, I received a call from a woman that worked for publishing companies. I've seen your articles. Have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, sure. Everybody has, right? Yes. (laughs) And so we had three long conversations, and I decided I didn't want to write the 50,001st business book. That's how many business books are published every year. I had written stories about my life along the way, particularly from Europe and my hometown and others, and then decided, let's put these stories together and make this a memoir. And so the book has 108 stories in it, some short, some long, but each one is a, a distinct step of my life, but they are interactive steps. It is a sequence of of experiences. And what's been rewarding to people, they like the short stories because they can pick up the book and read something and it's it's a complete experience. So what what does writing the book mean to me? It was a deep consideration of that self-evaluation. I found that there were still some elements of going back in my experiences where I was feeling regret, just as Daniel Pink talked about. Other cases where I was feeling anger. 
and particularly at you know going back to some of my relationships and uh, where I had decided not to to say anything negative to people about that relationship, but I was carrying the anger inside. I was able to look at those things squarely in the face and work my way through in the writing process of going through this book. I would recommend the process to everybody, whether you ever publish anything or not. Just going through that kind of self-thought as deep as you want to go, looking at what are the things we value, uh, how do we handle past things, what did we learn from it, and how do we go on from here. So one of the things I say to my clients and friends when they're going through some sort of a transition is, are you drifting or are you exploring? And they, what's the difference? Well, you can have the same kind of experiences, but you, if you're an explorer, you're asking yourself, I had that experience. What did I learn from that? It could be a bad experience or a good experience. Every single incident, every single experience, every day can be a learning experience. Be your authentic self. Discover who that is, and then learn to be yourself in your work environment and your personal environment. Carol Dweck uh, wrote a book called Mindset, and she defined two mindsets, of course, and you've probably read that as well. Yes. <laughs> Growth mindset says I can do most things I want if I work hard enough. Everything's a learning experience. Then the closed mindset is, you know, this happened. Eh, I'm, what's going to happen to me? You know, that sort of thing. Yes. I laugh because really you and I have read exactly yeah, yeah, the same books. Same yes. <laughs> and so, so you're exploring, you go with that mindset of trying to figure out, so what I, I'm learning, what I have learned, what could I learn? I'm curious about it. And then if you're drifting, you just like let it happen or how do you describe that? What I try to do, if I know someone is, is drifting and not looking at it as a learning experience, stop each incident and ask yourself, what did I learn today? That's the difference between exploring and, and drifting. And drifting is, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm just sort of moving around to different things. And of course, in, as you're exploring, you're also starting to set directions. So if someone is in a transition between one career and another, yes, they're looking for a job, the time that they're looking for a job and you have an interview, and some people have 20 before they discover the right job, but those 20 interviews, each one helps you determine a direction of what you like and you don't like, and then helps you conclude, here I am, here's what I like, and here's why this is important. Yes, I completely understand. For me, I learn what I don't want all the time. But yes, I had the, that experience when I was working on a nonprofit and I loved the job and I decided that I would take certificate for nonprofit and marketing. As I was studying, they were encouraging people to go to different nonprofit organizations and have a coffee with people that work there so that you can learn how they work and what you like. So I then meeting people and meeting people was amazing. But every time the, a meeting was, the end result was, whoa, I don't really think I could work here. The end I realized, oh my God, I'm studying this to know that I really don't want to work in nonprofit. How valuable is that? Uh, yes, it took you a while to go through it, but that's an important conclusion. But, you know, there's another thing I would say is that in my experience, most of the people I work with undervalue what they can do. They shoot too low. 
And the same is true with a lot of businesses, that they don't see the potential in the business that they are running or starting. Why is that? I think it's, it all has to do with those inner voices, self-criticism we have, a limit of imagination. And part of that limit of imagination is we can't imagine things that we've never dreamed of or never seen. And anything we can do in our experiences to experience and share with other people or to experience new places, new worlds, new cultures, opens our eyes to new possibilities. Yes, I agree. And that helps our creativity. It helps think about our dreams. It really sounds crazy to some people, but affirmations help. And the magic is it starts to replace those negative messages. But I don't think it's always like that because... You know, you can say it, but you have to also have the feeling and the belief inside, like you feel it in your heart. You can, I can repeat something, but is it, yep. you, you know, it's only in your head repeating it, but it's, it has to, you have to also feel it. That's why affirmation sometimes is a, a hard thing. Well, it's most effective when tied to some short-term actions. Sports people do it all the time and it works. Every football team, they cheer and shout and scream and say, we're winners before the game. To bring you back, you went to Virginia and you started a company. Then it was 20 years before you started to write your book. And then it's because somebody says you write nice articles where you were writing. I don't think you mentioned where you were writing these articles. before. When I came to Charlottesville, where this, this goes back now, early in the 20 years, I, I joined some writing nonfiction writing classes. That was a really rewarding. Everybody wrote articles and we compared notes. Those group formed friendships that I still have. Because when you're in a group like that, people write about really personal things and you got to really know people. When I went to Europe, I was writing newsletters back to family and friends, continued to write articles, some unpublished, but some published to friends and write articles on Medium. And I write for a newsletter or two that are put together by some of my friends. It's something I enjoy, those stories, and have not done fiction and probably won't do fiction. I like dialogue and can remember conversations quite well. So if you look in the, the book, it has a, quite a bit of dialogue in it about the dialogue that happened in the different incidents. Great. How long it took you to write the book? Uh, the whole process was a year, but the main writing was six months. The publisher had, gave me a, an editor and a project manager. So every week I would meet with either the project manager or the editor, and it just really clicked. I put the whole process on Trello, and my editor could follow the steps along the way and know exactly where I was. And then she and I talked about every every chapter as it was finished and, and then did revisions. Uh, only thing I didn't know about is how important the uh, covers and design of the interior of the book was. I had a very brilliant young woman uh, named Victoria Stingo who designed this this cover they how he designed the book so that its format of the multiple stories uh, looks quite quite good and it makes it easily accessible. Wonderful! It seems that you have met uh, wonderful people are a long journey from making writing a book. Yeah, great experience. And then, of course, I have the stage now where I compare notes with other authors. And I I told the publisher that I had two great fears about this book. One is that nobody will ever read it, and number two was everybody will read it. <laughs> and between those two, what's the most fearsome? Everybody will read it. 
And the reason is because, you know, do would I want to be on big stages, traveling the country, talking about this all over? Not really. But what I do want is good conversation. And I can have good conversations like this with a lot of people. And also in small groups, when I meet someone for coffee and we talk about it. So it's opened me up. And because it there are a lot of personal stories in it, it's helped people realize that yeah, I've been through some challenges and they see me as a little bit more open. Some of my friends said, whoa, what's it like to reveal so much? I go, well, I don't see any danger in it yet. There's been nobody who said, I never want to talk to you again. Right. So when you were raising your kid, you were not in the place that you are now. You were more into the way that you were raised, not expressing your feelings and being mm -hmm. vulnerable. But do you feel like what happened to you has changed the way you communicate with your children? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm sure more open. I think they saw me as when I was in the corporate world as, you know, just another corporate guy. I remember when they were they were young, I took them to my office one day. They looked at my telephone, which had a speakerphone, <laughs> said, oh, Now I know uh, what your job is. You talk on the phone all the time. <laughs> yes, you probably did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess what I would say is I think they're still learning about me because a lot of the things in the book with regard to this, some of the struggles and problems I was trying to solve in my corporate life is something that they'd never heard before. And I think some of the things that I wrote that were the way I saw the conflicts that their mother and I had is difficult for them. We continue to try to understand each other and support each other. Did your mother get to see you when you were changing? Were you able to talk to her and felt that you could? Oh, yes. Yes, very, very much so. And she was a very, very strong supporter through all of my difficulty. In her later life, she went into severe dementia. That's also a small story in the book. I didn't give the whole story of that, but I described that as she was drifting out to sea and I was trying to catch her hand because it was a very difficult time for her and for all the family. Even though that you were open with her and grew up in a, as you said, an environment that you shouldn't be expressing so much your feelings, she was very understanding. Oh, yes. She was understanding. I, I guess I had a feeling when I was at my lowest point, would I want to burden her with all my problems? And I didn't. But do I think she would have supported me? The answer is yes. Wonderful. Good. You were resourceful and you found your way which is wonderful. And one of the things that when she died, my brother and I did a whole picture board of her when she was younger, because one of the things we said was that we wanted to remember her when she was her vital self, not as a dementia patient. And the other thing we did for her, and this is mostly through my brother's initiative, she left us her diaries when she was age 15 and 16. We'd never seen those before, but they were in her bank box. And so we interpreted her diaries and has been published as a book now. Oh, okay. It, but it, it was quite revealing to us to think about what was she like at age 16 in a small rural community in Virginia. And one of the surprising things was how much social life there was in that small 
farming community, you know. It wasn't like they were all isolated sitting in their own farmhouse. You know, they were dancing and having a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, I think that's what happened in the past. People had a, more of a community. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Then we had to learn some uh, Latin and Pig Latin to understand the relationship, her early relationship with her dad that she had met when she was 16. <laughs> it is wonderful to have those memories yeah. from your mom. Yeah. So, Grant, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciated your story. And yes, we are going to get your book. Hands on the Shoulder, Finding Freedom and the Confluence of Love and Career. We will put it in the show notes. And again, thank you for being here. Well, good. Well, it's been it's been wonderful. And thank you so much for this opportunity to talk and to share. It's been a great experience. I hope you enjoyed it, today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto. Hasta pronto.